you have a Bible, you can open it to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. And we're going to revisit some verses there that we've read in the past couple of weeks as well for the sake of some different emphases. And these are Paul's words to a beloved church plant in a Greek city where they faced religious pressure from outside and relational pressure from inside as Aaron read to us and spoke of last week. And these are the words of the gospel for them. Philippians 3, starting in verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, that I may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Father, we pray again, as we always do, that you would be at work in us. Would you open our eyes and open our hearts? Would you make the meditations of our minds and our hearts to be pleasing in your sight? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On December 26 of 2004... 11-year-old Anto Surianto was playing soccer with friends on the beach on his home island of Similu. It's a small island off the western coast of Sumatra in Indonesia. It seemed like a perfectly normal day, just like all the other days before that he and his friends had played together on the beach until the island began to shake. The sand began to shift and the trees began to sway more than normal trees on the beach might do. An earthquake was rocking the ocean floor about 20 miles off the coast of his small island. And instinctively, these boys began to watch for one sign of danger. Not the splitting of the beach or the falling of the trees or the buildings, but rather the receding of the tide. 
seeing the ocean begin to retreat away from them, they knew that they had about 20 or 30 minutes to escape with their lives. And so they fled for the hills. They weren't the only ones who knew what to do. Out of some 83,000 people who live on that little island of Similu, only seven were caught up in the tsunami that soon followed behind that receding tide. Only seven of them. On the neighboring mainland, over 100,000 people were killed the same day by the same tsunami as it washed through their midst, through their towns, and through their villages. How did these boys and the people on this little island know what to do? How did they know how to survive this strange circumstance? Their ancestors had told them. Their grandparents had said, when the earth shakes, if the tide goes low, run for the hills. They hadn't seen it happen before. Their grandparents must have. They had not. But the earth shook, the tide ran low, and they ran for the hills. When the firm ground beneath your feet begins to shake, remember of the words of those who came before you and do what they said to do. That's what these boys did. Refuse the inclination to stay put for safety. Follow the imitation of the ones who came before and move with expectation to ground that is secure. They all had heard the wisdom. They heeded it. And they lived. This is how you remain standing when the tide goes low. This is how you keep your footing when the ocean sweeps through your world and washes it away. Such spiritual wisdom is much what Paul gives to this young church here in this letter, to these brothers whom he loves and longs for, with whom he feels such affection, his joy and his crown, He says to them, stand firm in the gospel. When the grass looks greener on the other side, when temptations abound around you, and when worldly moral religiosity appeals to your heart, hold true together to what you have attained. Stand firm in the gospel, through the gospel. He says to them, your footing will remain firm through the gospel. Gospel inclination. Gospel inclination. Everybody has instinctive reactions. Like those boys on the island, they had been trained by their grandparents to watch for a certain sign in a certain circumstance, and they had an instinctive reaction. We all do. If the canoe rolls to the right, you lean to the left. If the bicycle tires begin to slip on the wet pavement, you drop your feet off the pedals to the ground. It's just instinctive. In the snap of a moment, you know what to do. Do. You have gut reactions, automatic inclinations, and your soul is inclined in certain ways too. Not always in good ways. There are worldly inclinations and there are gospel inclinations. Paul says that Christ has secured the gospel for me. We saw a few weeks ago, he has made me his own. He's secured the gospel for me. And though I haven't made it my own, Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward 
towards what lies ahead, I press on. The worldly inclination that Paul refers to here that he puts behind him is to remember what lies behind. That's our inclination of our souls is to remember what lies behind. Either regret for past failures or pride in past successes. A couple of weeks ago I told you some of my embarrassing stories. And one of those was my athletic prowess as a young uh, uh, adolescent, I guess, in eighth grade, the basketball all-star and so forth. And my friends all caught up to me. They all were taller than me by the end of ninth grade, faster than me, quicker than, than I was, and so on. And my athletic heritage that was left by the almost end of high school was just a bit roll on the basketball team at the high school. And at the end of my junior year, the players a year behind us had come up and were vying for places on the team. And many of them were better than I was. And I remember my coach at one point as he was on the verge of figuring out who do I cut? Who do I get rid of? I only have so many places on the team. And he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said to me, do you assume that your past successes matter now? I've never forgotten that. It was a good lesson. I'm so glad that he said it because I had never been so humiliatingly confronted with such a reality that past successes, as wonderful as they may be, they don't count so much now, certainly not in the gospel, but not only are past successes irrelevant in the gospel, but past failures are as well. David pressed this with God like a son to a father. In Psalm 25, he writes this, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they are from of old, but remember not the sins of my youth. And God did not. As Paul well knew, because what lies behind for Paul? What is it that he's, after all, willfully trying to forget? Murder. Oh, there were plenty of successes for Paul, plenty of moments of pride that he could remember and look back on. We saw those again a few weeks ago. Many things that Paul had left behind consciously, but what seemed success before his conversion, before meeting Christ on the road, what seemed success before that must have felt now like foul failure. Paul had persecuted Christians. He had taken much pride in his role in doing that. And though God had forgotten his role, though God had forgotten and put behind his past failures, it must have been difficult for Paul. You have to imagine and think about the images in his mind's eye. Even the images in his ears, the screaming cries of wives and mothers, seeing their husbands and their sons fall to the martyr's sword as Saul, the Pharisee, looked on and presided approvingly. To call that a regret must have been at this point in Paul's life an understatement. Surely he could not have put these things behind him and completely forgotten about them. Even if he couldn't erase it from his memory, how could he forget such things from his past? How could he move on and and go forward, leaving them behind, as he says here? 
only, only by changing his gaze. Because gospel inclination is to see what lies ahead. He says, the one thing I do, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The gospel says to you, look forward. Look forward. To look behind, you should see only one thing. Do you know what that is? To look behind, you should see only one thing, and that is that by the blood of Christ, you have been redeemed. The penalty of your sin has fallen on Him, and you are, by faith, forgiven. When you look behind, that's what you should see. That's all that you should see. Now, look forward in faith, trusting that God will do good for His Son and for His daughter. Look forward in faith. After all, Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. It's actually a matter of maturity, he says. A matter of thinking. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And as you move forward in and to maturity, you see that your firm footing takes hold not just through gospel inclination, but even through gospel imitation. If imitation is the most sincere form of personal flattery, it's also the most practical form of gospel preservation. Paul says it here, verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, having cast away all those matters of personal boasting that he did earlier in the same chapter... Is Paul now changing his mind? Remember what he said before. He said, look, if you think you're moral, look at me. If you think you have a family heritage, look at me. But all that stuff is garbage, he said. Forget all that stuff. It means nothing. And now he's saying, look at me. Look at me. Join in imitating me. Really? Is that what he means? Do what he does. Yes, do what he does. After all, he had written to the Corinthians a very similar thing. He had said to them, I urge you, be imitators of me. It sounds conceited, doesn't it? Be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to the Corinthians, to remind you of my ways in Christ so that you could do what I do. Imitate me. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The children of Similu would not have survived had they not done as their grandparents had done. They would not have lived if their grandparents had not done what their grandparents had done. Likewise, Paul says, you must keep your eyes on and imitate those who walk According to the gospel, do as they do. You nominated elders this past spring, a few months ago. And that effort, in many ways, is to acknowledge men about whom you would want to follow. Men whose lives you would want to imitate. Men who do as you would want to do. 
That's much of what it means to be an elder. And it's one of the most difficult obstacles in preparation for possibly taking the office and fulfilling that role. The realization that suddenly I am a role model. It does matter what I do. People are watching me and it bears a heavy weight. It will wear a person out as it would have done for Paul, except for that last little clause, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. A ruling elder is an example. He's not just to be a voter. He's a shepherd. He's not a policymaker. He's an example for others to follow after. But the relief here for him is... Paul's not just talking about elders. He's not specifying elders here. He's saying anyone who imitates Christ. Keep your eyes on anyone who imitates Christ and follow them. Do what they do, he says. Even you. And here's where we have to pay attention because not only uh, does it matter who your eyes are on, but it matters whose eyes are on you. A friend of mine counseled a couple that was once having great marriage difficulty. Their marriage was on the verge of failure. The husband was a very successful business executive in a high-paying job. They were a very well-to-do family. Plenty of material resources in this family. But they were almost bankrupt because of the wife's gambling addiction. She stole from her husband. She emptied their bank accounts. She sold items that they had owned to raise money to feed her gambling addiction. They were on the verge of bankruptcy, of social shame in the world, in the the circles in which they lived. And of course, the pressure was on the husband. Many in his business, many of his colleagues, of his associates saying, you've got to just get rid of her. You've got to leave her. It's going to ruin you. And so they came to this pastor for advice, for counsel. And the pastor asked him, why have you not taken the advice of all of those who matter in your business world? And his answer was this. He said, how will my children see the love of God for them in their weakness if they don't see the love of their own father for their mother in hers? We offer these baptismal instructions twice a month. It's not a formality. It's not a routine. It's not a ritual. It's a sacramental reminder. It is something that you can see and feel and sense with the senses that God gave to you to remind you that even when the warm cuteness of infancy is not present here, even when there's not a crying baby to smile at and to cringe about the awkwardness of the moment, even when that's not in place, still it calls you to flee from your idols. It calls you to embrace the gospel for your own good and also because young eyes are watching you. That's part of our baptismal vows when we Enjoy the blessing of this sacrament. You know, I think of my own children. They watch me. They see what I do. And they will do as I do. They will not do as I don't do. 
and their souls may depend on it. Following the wrong example can be deadly. So Paul warns with tears and with fears of the wrong imitations. Verse 18, he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And how does he describe their walk? Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You know, it actually doesn't really sound that bad. Their God is their belly. Their minds are set on earthly things. I mean, how many days of the week does that describe me? How many days of the week does that describe you? You know, daily our concern is to acquire the things that we need. The groceries from the store, the electricity bills for the home, the clothes for our backs. And that's not necessarily wrong. Often our concern is to find the things that we desire. The comforts and the luxuries and the enjoyments. And that's not necessarily a problem either. But at what point does desire become greed? And at what point does greed become self-worship? And at what point do those who follow such a one recognize their peril? Where the mind is set, the feet will follow. And the Apostle Paul says, they will become enemies of the cross of Jesus because He did not hang on the cross to fill self-worshipping bellies with glorious shame. He hung on the cross to carry the sins of brothers and sisters, of boys and girls, of men and women, so that they might be set free from the appetites of their bellies, from the fallenness of the condition, from the guilt of their sin, that they might be set free. That's why He hung on the cross and to fill the desires of your belly, to seek after the appetites of your desires, is to work at cross purposes with the cross of Christ. They are enemies of Jesus. If you are to stand firm, you will do it through gospel imitation. It matters the right imitation that you follow, and your footing will be secured then by gospel expectation. Paul writes, their minds are set on earthly things, those wrong imitations. But, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. It is profoundly important to set our inclinations and our imitations on the gospel path. But if we neglect to set our expectations on heaven, the things of this world will loom too large and distract us from the truth. An African student at Covenant Seminary was giving his first sermon as a student there. He had been in the States for some months by now, moving over to begin his seminary education. And in his sermon, he explained, he said, I've been here for a while now, and I've seen the things that you have in this country. 
I've seen the clothes that you wear. I've seen the cars that you drive and the houses that you live in. I've seen the things that you do and that you have, and it's all very impressive. In fact, I'm overwhelmed by it. At the same time, I've been in a number of different churches. I've heard numerous sermons at this point in my months here in the States, and I have yet to hear a single sermon on heaven. You have so much. You don't seem to need it. In my country, he said, people have very little, almost nothing. And we preach on heaven all the time. Like Patty Sue Arnold in Ecuador, who's told our mission trip teams there before, she said, as a North American herself, North Americans don't believe in miracles because they don't need them. They don't need them. Our expectations have rested on economies and on educations and on security systems, all good blessings of the wonderful world that God has allowed us to live in, and yet blessings with distracting potential. In fact, the American experience has so flirted with perfection, hasn't it, that it's become polarizing, really. Historians don't have to tell us that At few other times in our past in this country have we been so divided in our views, whether political views or social or economic views or religious views, we're divided so deeply as a country. Some, who many label liberals, complain, this country is too easy on the wealthy. It's oppressive for most of us. Others, whom some label conservative, complain, This country is too intrusive on our rights. It's oppressive on most of us. And others who might label themselves patriotic complain, this country is the product of the blood and sweat of our fathers, and if you don't like it, go somewhere else. What does the gospel say when those waters are swirling and rising at our feet? It says this, Why are your minds set on earthly things? Our citizenship is in heaven. It's not to say our earthly lives don't matter. We live daily lives in a real society with real responsibilities. Paul had much to say about that. He insisted to the Colossians, walk in wisdom toward those outside the church. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And to the Romans, he wrote, let every person be subject to the governing authorities and do what is good accordingly. Your life on this earth matters, but where you belong is heaven. It's where your citizenship is. You live here, but you belong there, and one day it will be clear. For from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. What does that mean? Elsewhere, Paul says the physicality of it is a mystery. We can only begin to imagine exactly what it means physically, but the quality of it is no mystery. The quality of it is that we will be free of the effects of sin. Its guilt is gone already, dealt with on the cross in the past But we'll be free then from its corruption, from all the effects of it that we experience every day. It will all be gone. It will be a world that we can hardly begin to recognize. 
But more than the physicality or the quality of this transformation is the company that it implies. We will be like Jesus. That likeness is not new in Paul's letters. We find that likeness, first of all, in early Genesis, don't we? You remember God said, as the Trinity gathered together to contemplate its glorious creation, let us create man in our likeness. And he did. And that image, that likeness of God, meaning that of all the creatures, man was the one that walked with God in the garden. And for a moment, you begin to see the danger of that earthly-mindedness for momentary thrills of man-made pleasures, would you really trade away the very presence of the one who made you? Gospel expectations say no. Gospel expectations say to turn your eyes somewhere else. Sometimes our vision for living here while belonging there is muddied by the temporal blessings of this life now. I went to the eye doctor last week for an annual checkup that was about five years overdue. My eyes are healthy and well. But the technician was going through the routines of of checking my vision and, and of sliding those lenses across my eyes. You know, can you see it now? Can you see it now? Is this better? Is one better than two? Is three better than four? And after he went through all of that routine, he finally said of my results and of my responses to his questions, he said, wow, that's 2015 vision. And I said, really? You mean better than 2020? With ideas of a third career of a fighter pilot flashing through my my head? And he said, oh yes, but that's corrected. Without correction, you're nowhere close. The expectation of heaven corrects your vision. It clarifies what you see. It turns your eyes, faulty as they may be, away from the rising waters. And where your eye, your mind is set, your feet will follow. Having found their way to higher ground from which they watched that tsunami wash away their villages, the Similuans on that little island noticed that even the cattle, even the cattle had found safety. Even the cattle had moved from lower ground to the hills to avoid their certain death. They just seemed to know what to do, the villagers said. So often we are slow, like farm animals, to trust Jesus. But the Apostle assures us, if your inclinations and imitations are set on the gospel path, and if your expectations are set on heaven, then even when the tides of temptation and worldly appeals swirl around you, you will know what to do. You will know what to do. Father, we pray that you would allow for us to see clearly to recognize and to believe the promise of heaven that we might see how you call us through uh, uh, our inclinations and 
imitations and even through the expectation of heaven, we pray that you would allow us to recognize your calling to us, even through baptism, that we might turn away from our idols and that we might believe your gospel, that we might walk after your way and live. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.